Hi, welcome to History's Great Speeches. I'm Charles Featherston, voice artist, narrator and compiler of the series. Please like or subscribe and feel free to contact me via Bandcamp, Podbean, Facebook or Patreon to let me know speeches or time periods you'd like to see covered. You can find a full set of links at my website, charlesfeatherston.uk. On the Naval Boards, Preparing for the Coming War, 354. Those who praise your forefathers, men of Athens, desire, no doubt, to gratify you by their speeches. And yet I do not think they are acting in the interests of those whom they praise. For the subject on which they attempt to speak is one to which no words can do justice. And so, although they thus win for themselves the reputation of capable speakers, the impression which they convey to their hearers of the merit of our forefathers is not adequate to our conception of it. For my part, I believe that their highest praise is constituted by time. For the time that has passed has been long, and still no generation has risen whose achievements could be compared with advantage to theirs. As for myself, I shall attempt to point out the way in which, in my opinion, you can best make your preparations. For the truth is that if all of us who propose to address you were to succeed in proving to you our rhetorical skill, there would not be the slightest improvement in your condition. I am sure of it. But if a single speaker were to come forward, whoever he might be, who could instruct and convince you as to the nature of the preparations which would meet the city's need, as to their extent and the resources upon which we can draw for them, your present fears would instantly be dissolved. This I will attempt to do, if indeed it is in my power. But first I must briefly express my views as to our relations with the king. I hold the king to be the common enemy of all the Hellenes, and yet I should not on that account urge you, alone and unsupported, to raise war against him. For I observe that there is no common or mutual friendship even amongst the Hellenes themselves. Some have more faith in the king than in some other Hellenes. When such are the conditions, your interest requires you, I believe, to see to it that you only begin war from a fair and just cause, and to make all proper preparations. This should be the basis of your policy. For I believe, men of Athens, that if it were made plain to the eyes and understandings of the Hellenes that the king was making an attempt upon them, they would both fight in alliance with those who undertook the defence for them and with them, and would feel very grateful to them. But if we quarrel with him prematurely, while his intentions are still uncertain, I am afraid, men of Athens, that we may be forced to fight not only against the king, but also against those for whose benefit we are exercising such forethought. For he will pause in the execution of his project, if indeed he has really resolved to attack the Hellenes, and will bribe some of them with money and offers of friendship. While they, desirous of bringing their private wars to a successful end, and animated only by such a spirit, will disregard the common safety of all. I urge you, then, not to hurl the city needlessly into the midst of any such chaos of selfish passions. Moreover, I see that the question of the policy to be adopted towards the king does not even stand on the same footing for the other Hellenes as for you. It is open, I think, to many of them to manage certain of their own interests as they please and to disregard the rest of the Hellenes. 
But for you, it is not honourable, even if you are the injured party and are dealing with those who have injured you, to punish them so severely as to leave some of them to fall under the domination of the foreigner. And this being so, we must take care first that we do not find ourselves involved in an unequal war, and secondly, that he, whom we believe to be plotting against the Hellenes, does not gain credit from the supposition that he is their friend. How then can this be achieved? It will be achieved if it is manifest to all that the forces of Athens have been overhauled and put in readiness, and if her intentions in regard to their use are plainly righteous. But to those who take a bold line and urge you without any hesitation whatever to go to war, my reply is this, that it is not difficult to win a reputation for bravery when the occasion calls for deliberation, nor to prove yourself an accomplished orator when danger is at the door, but to display your courage in the hour of danger and, in debate, to have wiser advice to offer than others. That is the hard thing, and that is what is required of you. For my part, men of Athens, I consider that the proposed war with the king would be a difficult undertaking for the city. While the decisive conflict in which the war would result would be an easier matter, and for this reason. Every war, I suppose, necessarily requires ships and money and the command of positions. All such advantages the king, I find, possesses more abundantly than we. But a conflict of forces requires nothing so much as brave men. And of these, I believe, the larger number is with us and with those who share our danger. For this reason, I exhort you not to be the first, in any way whatever, to take up the war. But for the decisive struggle, I think you ought to be ready and your preparations made. And further, if the forces with which foreigners and Hellenes could respectively be repelled were really different in kind, the fact that we were arraying our forces against the king would naturally, it may be, admit of no concealment. But since all military preparations are of the same character and the main points of a force must always be the same, the means to repel enemies, to help allies and to retain existing advantages, why, when we have our acknowledged foes, do we seek to procure others? Let us rather prepare ourselves to meet the enemies whom we have and we shall then repel the king also if he takes the aggressive against us. Suppose that you yourself summon the Hellenes to your side now. If, when the attitude of some of them towards you is so disagreeable, you do not fulfil their demands, how can you expect that anyone will listen to you? Why, you say, we shall tell them that the king is plotting against them. Good heavens! Do you imagine that they do not foresee this themselves? Of course they do. But their fear of this does not yet outweigh the quarrels which some of them have against you and against each other. And so the tour of your envoys will end in nothing but their own rhapsodies. But if you wait, then, if the design which we now suspect is really on foot, there is not one of the Hellenes who stands so much upon his dignity that he will not come and beg for your aid when he sees that you have a thousand cavalry and infantry as many as anyone can desire and three hundred ships. For he will know that in these lies his surest hope of deliverance. Appeal to them now and we shall be supplicants and, if unsuccessful, rejected supplicants. Make your own preparations and wait 
and then they will be the suppliants and we their deliverers. And we may rest assured that they will all come to us for help. In thinking out these points and others like them, men of Athens, my object was not to devise a bold speech prolonged to no purpose, but I took the greatest pains to discover the means by which our preparations could be most effectively and quickly made. And therefore, if my proposal meets with your approval, when you have heard of it, you ought, I think, to pass it. Now, the first element in our preparation, men of Athens, and it is the most important, must be this. Your minds must be so disposed that every one of you will perform willingly and heartily any service that is required of him. For you see, men of Athens, that whenever you have unanimously desired any object, and the desire has been followed by a feeling on the part of every individual, that the practical steps towards it were for himself to take, the object has never yet slipped from your grasp. But whenever the wish has had no further result than that each man has looked to his neighbour, expecting his neighbour to act while he himself does nothing, the object has never yet been attained. But supposing you to be filled with the keenness that I have described, I am of the opinion that we should make up the 1,200 to their full number and increase it to 2,000 by the addition of 800. For if you can display this total, then, when you have allowed for the unmarried heiresses and orphans, for property outside Attica or held in partnership, and for any persons who may be unable to contribute, you will, I believe, actually have the full 1,200 persons available. These you must divide into 20 boards, as at present, with 60 persons to each board, and each of these boards you must divide into five sections of 12 persons each, taking care in every case to associate with the richest man the poorest men, to maintain the balance. Such is the arrangement of persons which I recommend, and my reason you will know when you have heard the nature of the entire system. I pass to the distribution of the ships. You must provide a total complement of 300 ships, forming 20 divisions of 15 ships apiece, and including in each division five of the first hundred vessels, five of the second hundred, and five of the third hundred. Next, you must assign by lot to each board of persons is 15 ships, and each board must assign three ships to each of its sections. This done, in order that you may have the payments also systematically arranged, you must divide the 6,000 talents, for that is the taxable capital of the country, into 100 parts of 60 talents each. Five of each of these parts you must allot to each of the larger boards, the 20, and each board must assign one of these sums of 60 talents to each of its sections, in order that, if you need a 100 ships, there may be 60 talents to be taxed for the expense of each ship and 12 persons responsible for it. If 230 talents will be taxed to make up the cost, and six persons will be responsible. If 300, then 20 talents must be taxed to defray the expense, and four persons will be responsible. In the same way, men of Athens, I bid you make a valuation according to the register of all those fittings of the ships which are in arrear, divide them into 20 parts, and allot to each of the large boards one twentieth of the debtors. These must then be assigned by each board in equal numbers to each of its sections, and the twelve persons composing each section must call up their share of the arrears and provide, ready-equipped, the ships which fall to them.
Such is the plan by which, in my opinion, the expense, the ships, the triarchs, and the recovery of the fittings could best be provided for and put into working order. I proceed to describe a simple and easy scheme for the manning of the vessels. I recommend that the generals should divide the whole space of the dockyards into ten, taking care to have in each space thirty slips for single vessels close together. This done, they should apportion to each space two of the boards and thirty ships, and should then assign a tribe to each space by lot. Each captain should divide into three parts the space which falls to his tribe, with the corresponding ships, and should allot these among the three wards of each tribe, in such a way that if each tribe has one division of the entire docks, each ward will have a third of one of these divisions. And you will know, in case of need, first the position assigned to the tribe, next that of the ward, and then the names of the triarchs and their ships. Each tribe will be answerable for thirty, and each ward for ten ships. If this system is put in train, circumstances as they arise will provide for anything that I may have overlooked today, for perhaps it is difficult to think of everything, and there will be a single organisation for the whole fleet and every part of it. But what of funds? What resources have we immediately at our command? The statements which I am about to make on this subject will no doubt be astonishing, but I will make it nevertheless. For I am convinced that upon a correct view of the facts, this statement alone will be proved true and will be justified by the event. I say then that this is not the time to discuss the financial question. We have large resources upon which, in case of necessity, we may honourably and rightly draw. But if we inquire for them now, we shall not believe that we can rely upon them even against the hour of need. So far shall we be from supplying them now. What then, you will ask me, are these resources which are non-existent now but will be ours then? This is really a riddle. I will tell you. Men of Athens, you see all this great city. In this city there is wealth which will compare, I had almost said, with the united wealth of all other cities. But such is the disposition of those who own it, that if all your orators were to raise the alarm that the king was coming, that he was at the doors, that there was no possible escape, and if with the orators an equal number of prophets foretold the same thing, even then, far from contributing funds, they would show no sign and make no acknowledgement of their possession of them. If, however, they were to see in course of actual realisation all the terrors with which at present we are only threatened in speeches, not one of them is so blind that he would not both offer his contribution and be among the first to pay the tax. For who will prefer to lose his life and property rather than contribute a part of his substance to save himself and the remainder of it? Funds, then, we can command, I am certain, if there is a genuine need of them, and not before. And accordingly, I urge you not even to look for them now. For all that you would provide now, if you decided upon a levy, would be more ludicrous than nothing at all. Suppose that we are told to pay 1%, that gives you 60 talents. 2% then. Double the amount, that makes 120 talents. And what is that to the 1,200 camels which, as these gentlemen tell us, are bringing the king's money for him? Or would you have me assume a payment of one-twelfth, 500 talents? Why, you would never submit to this. 
and if you paid the money down, it would not be adequate to the war. You must therefore make all your other preparations, but allow your funds to remain for the present in the hands of their owners. They could nowhere be more safely kept for the use of the state, and then, if the threatened crisis arises, you will receive them as the voluntary gift of their possessors. This, men of Athens, is not only a possible cause of action, but a dignified and a politic one. It is a course of action which is worthy to be reported to the ears of the king and which would inspire him with no slight apprehension. For he well knows that by two hundred ships, of which one hundred were Athenian, his ancestors were deprived of one thousand. And he will hear that Athens alone has now equipped three hundred, so that, however great his infatuation, he could certainly not imagine it a light thing to make this country his foe. But if it is his wealth that suggests proud thoughts to his mind, he will find that in this respect too his resources are weaker than ours. It is true that he is said to be bringing a great quantity of gold with him. But if he distributes this, he must look for more. For just so is this the way of springs and wells to give out, if large quantities are drawn from them all at once. Whereas we possess, as he will hear, in the taxable capital of our country, resources which we defend against attack in a way of which those ancestors of his who sleep at Marathon can best tell him. So long as we are the masters of the country, there is no risk of our resources being exhausted. Nor again can I see any grounds for the fear, which some feel, lest his wealth should enable him to collect a large mercenary force. It may be that many of the Hellenes would be glad to serve under him against Egypt, against Orontas, or against certain other foreign powers. Not from a wish that the king should conquer any such enemies, but because each desires individually to obtain some private means to relieve his present poverty. But I cannot believe that any Hellene would march against Hellas. Whither will he turn afterwards? Will he go to Phrygia and be a slave? For the war with the foreigner is a war for no other stake than our country, our life, our habits, our freedom and all that we value. Where is the wretch who would sacrifice self, parents, sepulchres, fatherland for the sake of some short-lived gain? I do not believe that he exists. And indeed, it is not even to the king's own interest to conquer the Hellenes with a mercenary force. For an army which has conquered us is, even more certainly, stronger than he and his intention is not to destroy us only that he may fall into the power of others. He wishes to rule, if it may be, over all the world, but if not, at least over those who are already his slaves. It may be supposed that the Thebans will be on the king's side. Now, this subject is one upon which it is hard to address you. For such is your hatred of them that you cannot hear a good word about them, however true, without displeasure. And yet those who have grave questions to consider must not on any pretext pass over any profitable line of argument. I believe, then, that so far are the Thebans from being likely ever to march with him against the Hellenes that they would give a great deal, if they had it to give, for an opportunity of cancelling their former sins against Hellas. But if anyone does believe that the Thebans are so unhappily constituted, at least you are all aware, I presume, that if the Thebans take the part of the king, their enemies must necessarily take the part of the Hellenes. 
My own belief is that our cause, the cause of justice and its supporters, will prove stronger in every emergency than the traitor and the foreigner. And therefore I say that we need feel no excessive apprehension and that we must not be led on into taking the first step towards war. Indeed, I cannot even see that any of the other Hellenes had reason to dread this war. Are they not all aware that so long as they thought of the king as their common foe and were at unity with one another, they were secure in their prosperity? But that ever since they imagined that they could count upon the king as their friend and fell to quarrelling over their private interests, they have suffered such evils as no malediction could have devised for them. Must we then dread a man whose friendship, thanks to fortune and heaven, has proved so unprofitable and his enmity so advantageous? By no means. Let us not, however, commit any aggression in view of our own interests and of the disturbed and mistrustful spirit which prevails among the rest of the Hellenes. Were it possible indeed to join forces with them all and with one accord to attack the king in his isolation, I should have counted it no wrong even if we were to take the aggressive. But since this is impossible, we must be careful to give the king no pretext for trying to enforce the claims of the other Hellenes against us. If you keep the peace, any such step on his part would arouse suspicion. But if you are the first to begin war, his hostility to you would make his desire to befriend your rivals appear natural enough. Do not then lay bare the evil condition of Hellas by calling the powers together when they will not obey or undertaking a war which you will be unable to carry on. Keep the peace, take courage and make your preparations. Resolve that the news which the king hears of you shall certainly not be that all Hellas and Athens with it is in distress or panic or confusion. Far from it. Let him rather know that if falsehood and perjury were not as disgraceful in Hellenic eyes as they are honourable in his, you would long ago have been on the march against him, and that though, as it is, your regard for yourselves forbids you to act thus, you are praying to all the gods that the same madness may seize him as once seized his ancestors. And if it occurs to him to reflect upon this, he will find that your deliberations are not conducted in any careless spirit. He at least shares the knowledge that it was your wars with his own ancestors that raised Athens to the summit of prosperity and greatness. While the peaceful policy which she previously pursued never gave her such a superiority as she now enjoys over any single state in Hellas. Aye, and he sees that the Hellenes are in need of one who, whether intentionally or not, will reconcile them one to another and he knows that if he were to stir up war, he himself would assume that character in relation to them, so that the news which he will hear of you will be intelligible and credible to him. But I do not wish to trouble you, men of Athens, by unduly prolonging my speech. I will, therefore, recapitulate my advice and retire. I bid you prepare your forces with a view to the enemies whom you have. If the king or any other power attempts to do you injury, you must defend yourselves with these same forces. But you must not take the aggressive by word or deed, and you must take care that it is your deeds and not your platform speeches that are worthy of your forefathers. If you act thus, you will be consulting both your own interests and those of the speakers who are opposing me. 
since you will have no cause to be angry with them afterwards because you have decided wrongly today.